let's let's pray. Father, we're thankful for all that you give us in your word. We're thankful for the text that you're studying today, every every word, every syllable. And I pray that we would learn what you what you want us to be and do from your word. This word written so many so many thousands of years ago that applies to us today. Grant us a deeper understanding of the book of Exodus, this passage today. May we live by this word. In your holy name, amen. Well, we're going to be continuing in Exodus, Exodus 25. And we're continuing to study the tabernacle. And again, it's important not to lose the big picture. God coming down to be with his people. And as I've said before, we need to pay close attention to the details uh, so that we don't miss their spiritual significance. And the construction of this tabernacle, it was a fulfillment of God's covenant. Remember, it was God making good on his promise to be with his people by pitching his tent in the middle of their camp. And this tabernacle of the Exodus was really an amazing new step in the plan of salvation. You know, the ultimate tabernacle is Jesus Christ. For scripture says the word became flesh and took up residence or the word became flesh and tabernacled among us. And so consider what we're studying now as the gospel according to the tabernacle. Now, I just want to take a minute and talk about the construction. The tabernacle of God, this tent, was four layers thick. It had an inner lining that was made of fine, fine linen. And it was uh, covered with cloth woven from goat's hair. And then you had two layers in turn. These two layers were covered by ram's skins. Over top of that was a waterproof tarp that was made from the hides of sea cows. So four layers thick. Now imagine how dark that must have been underneath all of those layers. There were no windows. So a priest entering into the tabernacle, entering into the holy place of God, was swallowed up. In darkness, no light could penetrate. I remember when we uh, visited Linville Caverns a few years ago, the tour guide took us way, way back into those caverns. And at one point, they told us all to kind of stand still for a moment. And they reached over and flicked a switch and turned out all the lights. Complete, complete darkness. You know that your eyes have to have some kind of light to be able to see at all. And so it was complete darkness, no light at all. I mean, you could hold your hand right here. You couldn't see anything. That's how that's how dark it was. No light was in that cave. No light was penetrating it. And I can just imagine it was something like that inside the tabernacle. Well, it would have been utterly and completely dark unless God made his light to shine 
in the darkness. You see, God, who never leaves his people in the dark, set up a light in his dwelling place, the golden lampstand. This is the light in God's house. You see, the golden lampstand stood in the holy place. It was opposite the table of the bread of presence. And as with all other furnishings, God gave, God gave Moses careful instructions for its fabrication. And here's what he says in Exodus 25, verses 31 through 36. You are to make a lampstand out of pure hammered gold. It is to be made of one piece. Its base and the shaft, the ornamental cups, the calyxes, which are the buds, the petals, the blossoms. Six branches are to extend from its side. So you've got the vertical shaft, and then you've got branches going out from each side. Six branches to extend from the sides. Three branches of the lampstand from one, three branches of the lampstand from the other side. There are to be three cups shaped like almond blossoms, each with a bud and petals on the first branch. Three cups shaped like an almond blossom, each with a bud and petal on the next branch. It is to be this way for the six branches that extend from the lampstand. There are to be four cups shaped like almond blossoms on the lampstand shaft along, uh, along with the buds and the blossoms. So the six branches that extend from the lampstand, the buds, must be under the first pair of branches from it. So you're building it up along the way, a bud and blossom, a bud and blossom, a bud and blossom. Uh, their, their calyxes, their branches are to be of one piece. All of it is to be a single hammered piece of gold. Now, based on this description, we get an idea. If you've seen a picture of a menorah, it's going to look something like that. Uh, but it would be hard to make an exact reproduction of this lampstand, uh, especially since God did not uh, provide Moses, or at least we don't have any documentation of the dimensions. But we get a good idea of what it would have looked like. Now, you know, as I said, the lampstand had a central shaft, which kind of broadened out at the very bottom to be the base and the branches going off to the side. Uh, and the lampstand that, uh, that we think about, like the menorah, is probably the traditional way uh, that it most likely looked. But here's something. When you think about how people make things out of gold today, we think of melting the gold, having some kind of mold and pouring it into it and letting the gold harden and you know break, breaking the mold and, and having something that's molded. Well, that's not how the lampstand was made. It was not melted down and poured into a mold. It says the lampstand was hammered out of a talent. So a bar, it started with a bar or a talent of gold, and it was hammered and hammered and hammered and beaten until it took the shape of this menorah. Now get this, it says a, a talent. It was, it was hammered out of a talent of gold. Well, a talent of go gold in today's measurements is roughly 75 pounds. 
So that's that's a lot of gold. So the lampstand that we know would have roughly weighed, if it was made out of a talent of gold, the lampstand would weigh about 75 pounds. And out of curiosity, I just had to look that up and said, okay, what would 75 pounds of gold be worth in today's standards? Oh, about $1.6 million. Uh, but, you know, the, the understand here that it was hammered, not put together. You know, there wasn't a separate base. It was all hammered. Imagine, imagine, I mean, just how ornate it was. Pounded from a rough shape, carefully crafted into this elaborate, beautiful piece of artwork with these flowers. I mean, imagine, I would think the, the, uh, the craftsman or the artisan who, who crafted this was given this great ability by God to be able to sculpt such a beautiful piece. Each branch had these golden decorations of almond buds, of blossoms, and of, of the fruit. The central shaft had the had the had these decorations, and and all of them anchored anchored in place, intersecting into the into the central lampstand. And then one more decoration at the top. You know, each of the branches ended in a leafy base of a bud from which opened the petals of an almond flower. And into this receptacle, they would put the lamp holder or the, or the, the cup. You see this bud and bloom, bud and bloom motif was repeated all the way up the shaft, all the way up the branches. And it says the flowery cup at the top of each branch was designed to hold the lamp. God said to Moses, make seven lamps on it. Its lamps are to be set so that they illuminate the area in front of it. The snuffers and fire pans must be made of pure gold. The lampstand with all the utensils is to be made from a tallet of pure gold. Be careful to make them according to the pattern you have seen, you have been shown on the mountain. Now, this not necessarily made of gold, but to have a lighting system where you have a uh, uh, an oil lamp, this was how their lighting systems were. Uh, the lamps would be removable bowls or saucers, usually made of pottery, but in this case, made of bowls, made, made of gold. Each bowl would have been filled with oil for the fuel to light it. You would have a have a have a wick at the very rim of the of the lamp, and usually, if it was pottery, they would have made the bowl and taken one edge and pinched one edge of it and run the wick up through it to uh, to hold the wick in place. And of course, once these lamps were lit, the lamps were turned toward the table of the showbread to provide light not only for the table but for the rest of the room. In Numbers, it says something about this too. The Lord spoke to Moses, speak to Aaron and tell him, when you set up the lamps, the seven lamps are to give light to the front of the lampstand. And so Aaron did this. He set the lamps to give light in front of the lampstand as the Lord had commanded Moses. They needed utensils for the lampstand, a pair of tongs for trimming the wicks, uh, a task that the priests performed both morning and evening. And as the wicks were trimmed, the discarded ends were put on a tray 
and carried out of the tabernacle. And like everything else in the holy place, the tray and the tongs were made of gold to convey a sense of God's majesty, his, uh, his royal majesty. Now, the first question that we ask is, well, okay, we know this, but how did this relate to Israel? What did it mean to the nation of Israel? Well, I mean, the golden lampstand had, an, had, it had obvious practical functions, right? It was to shed light on the tabernacle's interior. Every home needs light, and God's dwelling place is, is no exception. And so his golden lampstand illuminated the holy place, enabling the priests to see what they were doing as they carried on their work, the service of God. But what was the symbolic significance for the people of God? Now, there, there's a couple of ways to answer this question. You know, the, the lampstand, it stood for life. Think about it. It was in the shape of a tree. It just talks about the, the, the central shaft uh, that formed the trunk. The branches that spread out were covered with beautiful buds, blossoms, and fruit. This was a botanical motif. Uh, and it was not merely for decoration, but it was really symbolic. You see, as the lampstand branched out, it was budding. It was blooming. It was ripening with fruit. This is the picture that, that the lampstand, this is the imagery that is portraying. In other words, I mean, you've got three stages in the life cycle of a, of a tree that were occurring simultaneously that pictured in this golden lampstand. So this made, this made the lampstand a very potent picture or symbol of God's life-giving power. Now, the Bible, Scripture doesn't fully explain the symbolism, so there's some mystery in it. Uh, people have kind of wondered or speculated the white almond flowers may have been a symbol of hope because just like crocuses, just like daffodils, uh, the almond flowers are one of the first things to appear in springtime. And their early blossoms have the promise of the growing season. Well, we have to ask the question too, why? Why was the lampstand designed like an almond tree? What is, what is the significance of a tree? What tree can you think of that showed up in the beginning of the Bible? The tree of life, right? And as we move through the tabernacle, the images in the tabernacle go back to the Garden of Eden. If you remember when we talked about the Ark of the Covenant, what is over top of the Ark of the Covenant? Cherubim, right? And when do the cherubim show up? Well, if you remember, they show up at the garden when Adam and Eve are expelled. And the cherubim guarded the way back to the tree of life with a flaming sword. So the lampstand is a reminder of the tree of life that was in the Garden of Eden. And when God first put Adam and Eve in the garden, he gave them a tree of life 
which taught them. What did he teach them? It taught them to look to God for their life, to look to God for their vitality. It taught them to look to God for their source of all their vitality. But what happened? Once they sinned, they were cut off from the tree of life. The wages of their sin was death. And so the tree was also a reminder of their sinfulness, the sinfulness of Adam and Eve, the sinfulness of all men. And then you, but you look at the tree and you go, all is not lost because the golden lampstand stood as a permanent reminder that God is the life giver. You know, the life that we lost through sin is regained whenever God is present. You know, King David wrote in in one of the Psalms, with you, O God, is the fountain of life. And in that same verse, David went on to say, in your light, we see light. So this too was part of the lampstand's original meaning, that the presence of God is shining with light as well as growing with life. He is the light giver as well as the life giver. And so one purpose of this golden lampstand was to light the holy place. You know, it served as a welcome sign that someone was home. And the tabernacle meant that God was home with his people. And the lampstand helped to show this. But it provided more than just a friendly glow. The deeper meaning of this lampstand is that God himself is the light. And there is no darkness where God is. You know this, you know the scripture where it says God is light and in him there is no darkness at all. So the lamp in the tabernacle stood to show that as the people approached God, they were coming into the light. The light is where God is. He is our light and our salvation. And so like the tree of life, the lights on the lampstand looked back to creation where God said, let there be light. And there was light. And he put the lights in the sky to serve as signs to mark the seasons and the days and the nights and the years. There were seven lights on the lampstand. Seven takes us back to creation. The first thing God did, remember, was he created light. And he created for six days and rested on the seventh. And you see, God finished all of his creation and rested on the seventh. So in the Bible, seven is the number of completion, the perfection of light, and reminds us that God is the creator. So all of this symbolism reminding was going on in the minds of the priests as they went in to the Holy of Holies. Now we have to ask the question, we have to look deeper and we must ask, well, what does this show about Jesus? Because I've already mentioned before that everything in the tabernacle is a picture of Jesus and the church. And so the lampstand, it showed Israel that God alone is the source of life and light. And God's promise to give his people life and light 
Well, that, of course, has now been fulfilled in Jesus Christ. You know, at the beginning of the gospel, the apostle John described what it meant for the son of God to come into the world and tabernacle among us. In him was life. And that life was the light of men. You see, the golden lampstand told the Israelites to look for to look to God for life and light. And we look to Jesus for life and light. You know, one of my favorite Christmas hymns uh, is Hark the Herald Angels Sing by, uh, by Wesley. And there's a line in there that, that, that I get overjoyed with all the time. Light and life to all he brings. Gee, I wonder where Wesley got that line from. I just, I, I love that. Jesus is the life. You know, scripture says, the Bible says, everyone who believes in him may have eternal life. The son gives life to whom he is pleased to give it. Everyone who looks to the son and believes in him shall have eternal life. I have come that they may have life and have it in the full. I give them eternal life that they shall never perish. Wow. You, I can't stop. To know him is to live. And we should never forget that the way that he became our life giver was by dying for our sins on the cross and rising from the dead to justify us before God. And that was also the promise of the Old Testament from Isaiah. After the suffering of his soul, he will see the light of life and be satisfied. So Jesus is the life. Jesus is the light. Another great promise from the Old Testament. Isaiah, again, the people walking in darkness have seen a great light. On those living in the land of the shadow of death, a light has dawned. You see, the light Isaiah promised was not just for the priest that went in to the tabernacle, into the holy place. That light is for the whole human race. You know, God said to his servant, I will also make you a light for the Gentiles. I will make you a light for the Gentiles. I'm going to have to step aside and get some additional notes about that. Sometimes you mark up papers and sit on the computer. <laughs> you know, one of the things that, that, as I think about when I read this, think about what Jesus said. He, in, in, uh, in John 8, 12, he said, I am the light of the world. He said it again in John 9, 5, but let me give you the context for when he said Jesus was in the court of the women at the, at, the, at the Feast of Tabernacles. And what takes place at the end of the Feast of Tabernacles is that the priests would climb these ladders and they would light these big menorahs 
that were in the temple to give off light. This happened at the end of the Feast of Tabernacles. So picture Jesus. The, he's just been speaking. The priests have just lit these big menorahs, and Jesus is standing in front of these large menorahs that are casting light in the temple. And Jesus stands up and says, you think these are lights? I am the light of the world. Whoever follows me will never walk in darkness. What an impact. We are also in the dark. We were in the dark. Think of the spiritual condition that the Bible talks about, even for us. We were wandering in darkness, spiritual darkness, but light has come into the world. But think about this even applies today. But man loved darkness instead of light because their deeds were so evil. This is judgment. People would rather love darkness. Why? Think about, I don't know if this is a good thing to say or not, but think about a cockroach. What do cockroaches do? Well, of course, when you turn on the lights, they run, but they hide out in the darkness. They eat bacteria. They carry germs. Cockroaches, <laughs> cockroaches love the darkness. Yeah, and when you shine a light on them, they scatter, right? Well, people in darkness are like spiritual cockroaches. They like the darkness. They like feeding on the things of the world. And they do not want to come into the light because it's going to expose their sin. And the Bible says the way of the wicked is like deep darkness without the light of Jesus Christ. Their minds are dim. Their thinking is futile and their foolish hearts have been hardened. And so even the Bible remains dim to them. The light shines in the darkness, but the darkness has not understood it. Only the spirit of Christ can illuminate our minds and our hearts so that the Bible becomes a lamp to our feet and a light for our path. You see, this is why life is such a struggle, such a spiritual struggle for people who have not received Christ as their savior. They do not see things clearly. We have to keep that in mind when we see the things going on in the world today. And their people are going to keep stumbling, stumbling around in darkness until they come into the light of Jesus Christ. Paul said in Ephesians, they are darkened in their understanding and separated from the life of God because of the ignorance that is in them due to the hardening of their hearts. And so the only way to have life and light is to come to faith in Jesus Christ. So you see, the life and the light that was symbolized by this golden lampstand are now embodied in Christ, God's true tabernacle. The light and life he gives, the priest doesn't have to come in morning and night and trim the wick and add more oil. The life and light that Jesus gives are eternal. 
And we see the themes of life and light carried on through to the end of the Bible, to the book of Revelation. Do you realize that the end of Revelation promises that there is a tree of life growing in heaven and that everyone who believes in Jesus has the right to eat from it and live forever? But one thing that heaven does not have and does not need is a lampstand. God's heavenly city does not need the sun or the moon to shine on it. For the glory of God gives it light. And the lamb is its lamp. Oh. The lamb is Jesus Christ who offered himself as our sacrifice. He's the lamp of heaven. So think back when the priest entered the holy place to trim the golden lampstand, the shining tree of lights. They were glimpsing at the glorious destiny of the children of God. Now, remember I said that the holy place had no windows to allow light to shine into it. The only light that came was from this lampstand. But that light was really hidden from the outside world. The light in that holy place only the priest had the privilege of ministering and enjoying the light of that lampstand. And yet, as Christians, we have that privilege to enter into the light and fellowship and communion with God. John, who knew the fellowship with the Lord intimately, said, if we walk in the light as he is in the light, we have fellowship one with another. You know, one day we will live in the very presence of God's light. But in that meantime, we're called to live for Christ and shine for Christ. Scripture says God has made us alive with Christ. So that means that his life flows in our lives. You know, Jesus said, think about this too, as I described the menorah with its the shaft the branches. Jesus said, I'm the vine, meaning the main part of the tree. You are the branches. If a man remains in me and I in him, he will bear much fruit. We also shine as God's lights in the world. Jesus said, while I am of the world, I'm the light of the world. But then he says, you will be the light of the world. You know, he has left his light in the world to keep it from being plunged into darkness. And we are now called to shine like the stars in heaven. Did you realize that the book of Revelation compares us to lampstands? We are the lights shining for Jesus in the world. If the people are going to see him, they see him through us. That same Jesus that said he was the light of the world says you are the light of the world. Let your light shine before men that they may see your good deeds and praise the Father in heaven. Uh, There's one commentator that said, the world has no other light than the light which we shed abroad. 
by holding aloft the lamp of the word and lifting the Lord Jesus Christ and letting him shine through us. I want to end by summarizing what I think is a wonderful little story by J.B. Phillips. It's a story about Christians shining for Christ. J.B. Phillips wrote this, in a sense, it's a parable about a senior angel showing a very young angel the splendors and glories of the universe. And so they've been traveling through the galaxy. And and finally, these two angels come to our galaxy. And as the two of them draw near to the star, which we call our sun, and to its circling planets, the senior angel pointed to a small and rather insignificant sphere, turning very slowly on its axis. It looked kind of dull, almost like a dirty tennis ball to this young angel whose mind had been filled with the, with the size and the glory of the galaxies he had just seen. But this senior angel said, I want you to watch that one particularly. And that little angel says, well, it looks rather small and dirty to me. What's so special about that one? That is a visited planet, said the senior angel. Visited? said the little angel, you you don't mean it was visited by, indeed I do. That ball, which I have no doubt looks to you to be small and insignificant and not perhaps over clean, has been visited by our Prince of Glory. This was beyond the little angel's comprehension. So to help him understand, the senior angel took him back in history. While the two of them moved nearer to the spinning ball, it stopped spinning, kind of spun backwards in time for a while, and then slowly resumed its spin. Now look, said the senior angel. The little angel looks, and there appeared here and there on this dull surface, little flashes of light every now and then. Some of them merely momentary, and some of them persisting for some time. As time went forward, the senior angel says, now look. And little angel looked and he says, what am I seeing? You're watching this world as it was some thousands of years ago. Every flash, every glow of light that you see is something of the father's knowledge and wisdom breaking into the minds and the hearts of the people who live upon this planet. Not many people you see can hear his voice or understand what he says, even though he is speaking gently and quietly all the time. The little angel, well, why are they so blind and deaf and stupid? Well, the senior angel says, it's not for us to judge them. We who live in the splendor have no idea what it is like to live in the dark. But watch. And in a moment, you're going to see something truly wonderful. The earth went on turning and spinning. And then quite suddenly, in the upper half of the globe, there appeared this tiny, light, but so intense that the angels had to cover their eyes due to the intensity of this light. The little angel says, I think I can guess that was the visit, wasn't it? Yes, it was the visit. The light himself went down there and lived among them. Open your eyes now. The dazzling light is gone. The prince has returned to his home of light. 
but, but watch the earth now. And as they looked in the place of the dazzle light, now there was this bright glow which throbbed and pulsated. And then as the earth turned more, little points of light started breaking out all over this planet. A few flickered and died, but for the most part, these lights burned steadily. And as they continued to watch in many parts, of, there was this glow that started getting brighter and brighter. You see what is happening? Said the senior angel. The bright glow is the company of loyal men and women he has left behind. And with his help, they spread the glow. And now light begins to shine all over this previously dark planet. You know, what J.B. Phillips describes here is really our privilege as Christians. God has given us new life. And now that we're alive in Christ, we're called to shine, to give a glowing testimony of his saving grace. We shine for Jesus when we go out of our way to show special kindness. We shine for Jesus when we do our work cheerfully without complaining. We shine for Jesus when we give generously to help those in need. And we shine brightest of all when we share the gospel, telling people what God has done to save us through the death and resurrection of Christ. We're commanded to be filled with the oil of the Holy Spirit so that our light will shine on people in the world. And when we're burning brightly for Christ, we're not seen. But his glory shines through us. There's a uh, simple children's hymn that I found that speaks about being a radiant Christian. It says, be a light for Jesus, burn or br brightly shine each day, radiate the Savior in the home and at play. Others soon will see it as you onward go. Keep on burning brightly with a steady glow. Never let it flicker, never let it dim. Trim your lamp for Jesus, let it shine for him. Shine on through the darkness, precious in God's sight. Are, he, are his own dear children walking in his light? We are God's children walking in his light. And I guess the, I'll end with a question is, are we a bright light shining over the dark sea of humanity, pointing people to Christ? I think this should be our prayer, not to be the lights that kind of flickered and then went out, not the lights that grow dim, but the lights that keep shining brightly for Christ. Let's pray. Father, Lord, what a great privilege it is to spend time fellowshipping, to spend time in your word, make our, make our souls hungry to be filled with the light and life of our Lord Jesus Christ. Use, use your word to remind us of who we used to be and how we have been delivered from darkness 
and into your marvelous light. Father, we praise you. Lord, we praise you for being the light of the world and for rescuing us and for forgiving us of our sins and granting us new life. And Lord, may we be lights for Jesus in our communities, Lord, in, in may we be lights at work, at school, wherever you take us. Father, when we leave here in this place right now, when we leave here and walk into the darkness of the world, help us to shine brightly, Lord, and to never flicker or grow dim. Help us to keep our eyes on you as our light and life. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen.